Major Lindsay in Africa presents Between the Legal Lines, a podcast focused on leading women lawyers who have pushed beyond the boundaries and found success. Welcome to Between the Legal Lines. I am your host, Andrea Bricka. This podcast is a series of monthly interviews where we explore how women, who happen to also be both executives and lawyers, navigate the boundaries often placed upon them due to their roles and their demographic. These women have found success, despite those sometimes very narrowly drawn lines that govern what is acceptable and what is not. And each month, we hear a new story from a different woman about what that is like. Joining me today is Eliza Stoker, the originator of this podcast for what we can now call our annual recap of the year. It was a big year for Eliza's career, and if we have learned anything from our podcast guests, that is that change propels your career. So we are going to talk a bit about change and then delve into questions that we get from women about their career challenges and how that could be a catalyst for change. Welcome, Eliza. So excited you're here for our second annual, I guess, review. Tell yeah. us tell us a little bit about what this year has meant for your career. So I, like many people in 2021, made a big change in my career. Um, I had an opportunity to remain at my company and I do really like being at my company. So being able to make a change and stay at the same employer was a plus to me, but it was a little bit unprecedented (laughs) at my company and came as a major shock to all my friends and colleagues that I was doing this Uh, for since the late nineties, I have been in retained search as a profession. I've been at MLA for 10 years in their retained search practice. The last six of those years, I've spent running a retained search practice. And then as of October 1st, I decided to start running their contingent practice that focuses on associates moving from law firm to law firm. If you're not a recruiter, none of that sounds at all different or exciting. If you are a recruiter, it's kind of a big deal to spend 20 years doing retained search, to spend 10 years focused on placing lawyers into corporate legal departments and suddenly say, okay, I'm going to manage this pre-existing team of brilliant recruiters all who do something I personally have never done, um, who are considered to be on the opposite side of the business from where I come. There's even been some animosity between the practice groups over the years. Um, And so this did come, it came as a surprise to me, and it seems to have come as a surprise to everybody else. And uh, I have to say the surprise has been pretty magical so far. Well, that's good to hear. Maybe there's a little bit of an analogy of somebody saying they're in-house counsel or general counsel, and then I'm going to go to a law firm and be a partner. I think that would be (laughs) the kind of change, right? So different. I mean, you're using some of the same skills, but it's just such a different animal. So that's a big change. Did you experience any fear of change in making your move? And how do you think women in particular face that fear or taking a risk that comes with a career change? Um, I have been told, I do a lot of my thinking out loud and I do have a lot of trusted advisors within MLA. And so I had many, many conversations with many people about the possibility of making this change before it came to reality. And I've had a lot of conversations with people 
since making the change, right? And and many of those conversations have included a moment where someone has pointed out to me that I was, that my thinking sounded gendered, by which they meant um, I was taking a view of my own career and my own options and possibilities from a place that sounded very specifically female in our culture, right? Um, and it was, it came as a shock to me each and every time, <laughs> but I think they were also correct. I, you know, even in my little in, spiel introdu- introducing the change I made, I was careful to point out that I had never done the role that I'm now managing. I have never operated in the market. I'm now leading a team through. Um, and a lot of people reminded me that there is a huge portion of the population that might not bother entertaining those fears um, within their decision-making process. It may also have been somewhat un- different, I guess, for me to have consulted so many people. I spoke to my current boss. I spoke to my potential new boss. I spoke to HR. <laughs> I spoke to the kindly woman VP who had first pointed out to me that perhaps I should consider this as a real opportunity for myself. Um, and some of it was about confirming for myself that this change could be very good for me. I, I wanted other people to agree with me that this move would be good for my career. And I'm not sure how specific that is to women in the workplace, or I don't know where that came from, but I have had people ask me if I thought that was an example of me limiting myself in my thinking. Yeah, that's fair. And that was going to be my next question is, is that what they were saying by gendered thinking? Like not that, not that many men would go consult that many people before making a change that they would just do it. Um, That, that would have been one of my questions. And it sounds like that's what people were telling you. Yeah. And it wasn't unkindly, right? Um, I had so, I mean, it worked. I got a ton of support, right? (laughs) Like I had a lot of people say, oh my God, good for you. This is so exciting. You should totally do this. And here's why you should do this. Like I got a lot of encouragement. And so it worked if that's what I needed, right? If what I needed was the encouragement um, and the confirmation that I wasn't making a mistake, I, I definitely got that. And that was fantastic. And it felt great. And it was fun. Um, but I have spent the last 20 years of my life telling candidates, no one's going to manage your career, but you, and anyone telling you to pick one job over another job, isn't the person who's going to wake up every day and go to that job, right? (laughs) Like be responsible for being good at that job. Uh, and while I'm not saying this ran counter to that advice, because in the end it was my decision and I felt very much in control of my own destiny the entire time. Um, it is interesting to me that I, I seem to have needed that confirmation. Interesting. Do you also think that kind of fear and risk when you're making a career change like that, do you think age plays a role in how people perceive that in any way? So in other words, you know, if you're in your three or four years into your career and you're going to make a career change, my sense is, and I get this sense from candidates, right? You're looking forward to how is this going to propel me forward? But if you're later in your career and you've been doing something for 20 years, are you looking at it differently and have different fears and concerns about taking that risk? 
I always assumed that would be the case, that at some point I would achieve something and be like, okay, this is the role from which I retire, right? Um, and that's still part of my thinking. Like if I ever became president of the company, right? At that point, I would probably be like, okay, I can retire from here. <laughs> I feel like, I, you know, because once you're the top dog of a company, it's kind of hard to be like, oh, I haven't achieved much in my career, you know? Um, so I did always assume that would be the case. And yet here I am, I'm turning 50 in January. Uh, and I'm still very much focused on what can I do before I retire? What can I achieve before I retire? And that wasn't even necessarily what drove this. Maybe 50% was driven by that kind of thinking, but the other 50% was about a much more personal form of growth and satisfaction than simple accomplishment, right? It was more about, am I growing complacent? Am I going to get bored? Am I going to stop learning one day? That was more the fear that drove this change. So in a weird way, age didn't enter into it. I would have thought that it would, it didn't. I should caveat this. I, I should attach two disclosures to that. One is I'm a late bloomer in my career, right? I mean, I graduated, I went to law school in my 30s. So I've always kind of had this notion of reinvention in my career and, and this willingness to start over with something new. Um, so perhaps I don't feel as late in my career as other 50-year-olds do because I had that weird interruption kind of in the middle. And separately, I look young, right? The, true. I don't. I, I haven't started dyeing my hair because I think going a little gray is going to help me be taken more seriously, not less so. Um, so I, I should disclose that I may have thinking about that stuff that is from a fairly privileged position. Interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting when you talk about people, you know, if you were president, would you have reached your career pinnacle? But in our job and dealing with lawyers, we reach many lawyers that have become general counsel and they just want to be general counsel of a bigger company and then president of a company and then president of a bigger company. So it's, and it then is, on the board. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is never ending when you're in that kind of mindset and career. They say some of that's changing after the pandemic and people are reevaluating. I, I, I don't know how much, I mean, especially when it comes to lawyers and people in high powered positions like that. So for me, I will admit there was no desire to take a step back. Right. Which I think supports your point. Um, some of the people who expressed surprise at my decision to change rules told me that they were privately thinking I was going back to recruiting, um, that I was going to stop managing a team and go back to a more individual co contributor role, which I did always love. Um, and it's not that that's a step backwards, but it doesn't feel necessarily like progress to go back to a role that I played before the role I have now. Um, which I guess is a very long-winded way of saying I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so given that you moved within your current company and let's talk about challenges women ask us about, have asked you about over the 20 years, have asked me about, um, in my 20 years of doing this, that, that are related to their current organization. And it, some of it relates to what you just talked about is taking a step back. 
for example, we often get searches where a general counsel leaves, somebody internally is put in an interim role, but they're still conducting a search. They've still hired us to, to, to conduct a search. And people, particularly women, you know, say they can't help but their feelings are getting hurt, that, you know, that there was a general general counsel before, more than likely a man. Now there are women that are acting as the general counsel, and then they're going to bring in somebody else more likely than not. It doesn't happen every time, right? But if they do bring in somebody else, and particularly if it's a man, people are telling us, you know, do I need to pretend that it's not a problem that, you know, it, was it, a, is there ever an appropriate time to say they should have just given me the job because I'm doing it. I'm performing well, basically say, give me this job. I'm doing it. Cause other words, they're maybe looking at taking a step back if somebody else is brought in. And we see this a lot. We do see it a lot. And it is always uncomfortable for everybody. Right. I mean, the messaging to a person, if you're an interim general counsel, it's probably because you were the number two when someone left. Um, and so you probably viewed yourself as a potential replacement and you're being told in this very painful way, we don't view you as that replacement, but we're going to let you do the work until we find the real replacement. That is a very harsh way to describe what is sometimes a corporate necessity. Right? I realize that I'm being a little unfair when I describe it that way, but that's how it feels from the interim person's perspective. And when gender can come into it, you know, it's interesting because there, normally for many, many years, the advice we would give to employers in that situation was to make sure their final decision as to whom to hire made so much sense, right? Was such a contrast to the interim person that even the interim person would be like, okay, maybe if I can get 10 more years experience, I will be the next successor. Or, okay, maybe I need to pursue more expertise in this field that that person knows everything about. And then I will be viewed as the successor, right? Try to make it easy that way for them to swallow this bitter pill. And it makes sense to me that in more recent years, that consideration might come to include gender or race. Um, not that you can change the gender or race of the successful candidate in the search, but are clients taking that into account? Like, all right, we had a male GC, we have a woman interim, are we really gonna hire a man again and give him the real job while she only managed to do it for six to 12 months? I would imagine that creates additional complications. Have you seen that specific scenario? Have you seen that happen? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. And and then what you said was about, you know, making sure they have a real reason, I think is another thing that we hear, right? Related yeah. to people that are passed over for a promotion and they've been doing the work, right? Like, for example, you're you're up for to become the DGC, right? You're not, it's not even the GC role. Um, and you feel like that you're already performing, right? We've had candidates that say, I'm already performing. What is a GC role and doing the projects and doing it all. And they're asking me to do these projects, but they're not going to give me that role or that title. How do you, how do you handle that? Right. And, and how do you get others? If you decide that's it, I'm going to go look somewhere else, right? You're going to convince 
us at MLA that you're doing a DGC job, but you don't have a DGC title. Like how do you, how do, how do people process that? How do they work through that? How do they articulate I'm doing the job? That is a really good, that, that is a really good question. Cause there's a lot of tactics to discuss in there, right? Like, um, if your employer is asked, because there's two separate things happening. On the one hand, you've got an employee being asked to work above their pay grade, to perform in a way that other people with their title and their income are not being expected to perform. And the theory behind employment is technically supposed to be that the more productive you are and the greater responsibility you have, the more money they pay you, right? So that's a very personal assessment, I would say. Um, I will literally visualize scales in my mind and think, okay, there's things I love about my current situation. There are things about my current situation that I am finding unfair. And who has the greater balance right now? Which way do the scales actually tip? And when they tip the wrong way, that's when you leave. Um, And that is really the only way to answer that question across every context I can think of. It's a very personal decision, what you're willing to put up with, what the trade-off is. But separately, when you do start circulating that resume, you can never lie. You can never claim to have had the deputy title if you didn't have the deputy title. That will out itself in such obvious ways and it will be embarrassing when you're asked about it. And no explanation that you offer will help you recover from that. That, That's my view. Maybe I'm unduly harsh, but I have yet to see a recruiter disagree with me when I took that view in that situation. Yeah, you you can't lie about what your (laughs) title was. Um, That just doesn't. I mean, you can you, you can spell out what you did and other companies may say, oh, wow, that's what our deputy does. And if you see a job, you want to make sure you can articulate you're doing that, but don't be hung up on the title and trying to pretend that it was a different thing than it, than it was. I mean, I've always been a big believer and you know, this is, you know, everything works out the way it's supposed to. And just, you have to be honest about what you're doing. You have to be proactive about it. You want to be bold about what you have done, but you can't lie about what your title was or, or what you've done. Yeah. Um, and I have heard people offer explanations that I know they find very reasonable and it becomes clear that they are in the midst of an unfair situation, but it's, it's, it doesn't really matter, unfortunately. Um, and, and the thing is, this is one of the few benefits to the fact that legal department titles do not translate from company to company. One company's deputy is another company's, you know, counsel, right? So there's no point in, in, in worrying about the title. If you describe accurately what you do, other employers and recruiters will recognize what level is appropriate at that department. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And especially when somebody says, you know, I'm afraid to even circulate my resume because people aren't going to believe when I say I'm doing the work of a deputy. I'm like, well, you can't really say that on your resume. I'm doing the work of a deputy. That doesn't look right. But you do want to highlight what you are doing. And other people are going to look at that and say, okay, that's high level. That's deputy in our company. And so 
informed and knowledgeable people will get it and, and it will work out for you well, if, if you choose, if those scales, those scales you describe tip into the direction of looking for a new role, you shouldn't be hung up on what people are going to believe because the right company is going to see your value. I, I think that's right. And, and I don't think you, you know, a whole separate reason for not wasting any time on like, well, I'm doing the work of a deputy. I just don't have the title. You know, the new employer, that sounds like baggage, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're there to describe what you do and what you want to do, what you can do, what you're learning to do, what you're good at, what you're working on. But like getting into what's happening to you because of the politics at your current employer, that's always tricky, right? It's usually better to just not not get into that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, th- and that also leads to an issue that I think women, from what I've heard over the years, I've experienced over the years, I think face more and more. And that's that idea of just taking on more and more work, um, being blocked maybe by superiors and whether they're getting paid for it or getting recognized for it. And some of that, to your point, is internal politics some of it is sour grapes and some of it's very real, right? The willingness to take on larger roles, take on more direct reports, but without the promotion and, and or the pay raise. And people will ask us, you know, is that fair? Should that be happening? And I think that relates back to what you just said. It's your internal company politics. And that's what you have to decide if you're going to put up with that or if you are going to go out there and look for something else that is going to allow you to be paid more for doing that work. Yeah. That is a conversation I have a lot. Um, it comes up sometimes in interviews with women. Um, I love interviewing candidates. And so, yeah, sometimes we get into some deeper personal areas and I have had a lot of women disclose to me over the years that, they feel very strongly like they are doing more work than their male peers and may not be getting recognized for it. And I can tell from interviews with them, from my own personal experiences, from, you know, complaint sessions with friends, right? There's, there are universal themes around what tends to lead to women to have these feelings. Like, why am I working so much harder than the men around me? And some of it is just very straightforward by request from their colleagues and their bosses, right? Um, a lot of women report being volunteered for extra work that doesn't sound like much in the moment. Hey, can you send that calendar invite? Can you have your admin do this? Can you, um, I know you took notes. I saw you writing. Can you circulate notes? They are, they're not large requests in the moment, but it piles up to extra work and it becomes future expectations, right? There's also that phenomenon of people where just, they just think women are going to be more approachable and nicer. And that is a little more, it's less direct, but it leads to even more work than that first scenario where where people just straight up ask you um, to do little administrative things throughout the day. When you've got an employee with a question, 
they seem just more likely to be less afraid of the women supervisors than the men. They, they seem more likely to interrupt that person's day and say, hey, I just have a question and expect a kind patient answer. Um, I know a lot of men who are like, oh, I never get questions, <laughs> right? Which make all the women like, wait, what? Because I have a hard time getting through my day sometimes, <laughs> right? Um, in my lifetime, I have had men say things to me like, oh, I was going to ask, you know, my boss, but he's just so busy that I thought I would ask you. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty busy too, you know? <laughs> so that is... Um, it's less formal. It's it's more everyday, and a lot of it is emotional labor. It is you are not allowed to be impatient in those moments because that's behavior unbefitting a woman, right? And they're more likely to judge you when you are impatient in those moments. Like, oh, Eliza's really in a bad mood today, <laughs> you know? Like, rather than okay, so Eliza's busy, and I shouldn't bother her when she's working. Right. Obviously, I'm generalizing and I can't say I have a ton of this experience personally currently, but I've encountered it. That's for sure. And a lot of women I talk to encounter it. And Andrea, I'll be honest, I just kind of assume you encounter it, too. I have. I, I, I yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, what do you do about it? Well, yeah, that's the next question, right? Like, do you <laughs> put this table out there for do you put this issue out there on the table for discussion? Is it worth raising? And, you know, if people are listening to us that are looking to become a general counsel, is it career suicide to say, hey, I'm doing more work than this person over here? How, how do we address it? How do we address that in the workplace? How do we change the thinking? Or is it, is it somewhat ingrained? It, it's pretty ingrained, and yet it can be challenged. Um, and, and once again, that's one of those very personal things. It's about you and your comfort level um, with being uncomfortable, frankly. Uh, and it's about your employer and their culture. So right at the beginning, I said that I viewed it as a huge, like a, it's a luxury to me that I can have a radical career change without changing employers um, because I like my employer. And this is one of the reasons why. My, at our company, we talk about this as a phenomenon on the leadership team. Um, and I have sent studies to the president of our company saying, look, here's another study showing that female professors are approached significantly more often by students asking for, you know, raises to their grades, for postponements on deadlines, for meetings outside of office hours. Um, and those female professors are more likely to have those students complain over their head about their refusal to meet these requests, the same requests they're not making of their male professors, right? So I send links to those articles to the president of my company, and he writes back and says, okay, good, let's bring this up in the next leadership call, right? So like, I'm in a place where I get to call attention to this. And that's why I'm careful to point out, I don't actually experience a ton of this currently, because when I feel it happening, I say so, and I, it is not career suicide for me at this company, right? There are places where I can imagine it would be career suicide and it might not be worth raising. In those contexts, I'm often the idiot who raises it anyway. And so like, 
like that would not be the right employer for me. And I would probably not be there long term. <laughs> so I don't know if there's any advice contained within that answer, but it is my most honest answer. Well, I think it, it part of it is understanding your company culture, right? Because the other question we get about is if you have a boss that's kind of not doesn't have the best reputation in the company or is, you know, kind of blocking you from doing new things and making the department as a whole look bad, do you go over the head of your boss um, and try these things without your boss's approval? And that's a little bit of what you're talking about, right? And in this context, and it can be across the board. And a lot of that is cultural. Some companies are okay with that. Some bosses are okay with that, I think. Um, I, what do you think about that? I mean, is it if, is it okay for somebody to say, my career is being hampered by who I work for and I need to look out for my career and not worry about that? Have you had experiences where people have talked about doing that? Yes, I've seen it done. I'll admit I've done it, right? Um, I kind of assume we've all done it at some point. It being not necessarily gone over your boss's head, but done something that you know you weren't supposed to do, right? Like, you know, either your boss had told you not to and you did it anyway, or you were like, I think I'll choose forgiveness over permission in this case, right? Like, I think I, maybe that's just me, but I know I've done it and I kind of assume we've all done it at some point. And sometimes it works and it's amazing. And sometimes it backfires and it's humiliating, right? So all I would say is I don't consider that ever off the table, doing something like that. Um, but you want to be selective and careful and respectful, right? Because it's the good boss that's going to be kind of okay with it. And that's the great irony right? Is that it's the good boss that's probably going to be like, hmm, I thought I told you not to do this, but you did it anyway, and I'm glad it worked, and maybe I'll reconsider my advice next time. But, um, right, that's a good boss, I would think. That's what people would like in a boss, is someone who can respond that way. It's an ego bruiser, right? I'm both a boss and I report to someone, and I've had my ego bruised by other people's versions of this. But in that moment, hopefully you're smart enough to say, okay, my ego is bruised because my ego is bruised. That doesn't mean that this person needs to get reprimanded or that this was wrong. Maybe they were right and I was wrong. And that's why this had to go down this way, right? Like if you can be respectful throughout whatever your chosen sidestepping process is, you increase the chances of that happening. So how are you respectful when you sidestep a boss, right? <laughs> like, well, first of all, I am using the word sidestep instead of going over his or her head. Um, I don't, it's a much harder thing to call your boss's boss. Um, if it's a new idea, you can get away with it, I think, and just be like, well, I was talking to this person and I had this idea. And so I said it out loud and they thought it was a good idea. So we're going to do this, right? I think you can get away with that and even be trusted. I don't think I would distrust someone who said those words to me. Um, I would need other reasons to distrust them, right? But if you're going over your boss's head to say, oh, my boss 
made this really bad decision and I want you to override him. I don't know. I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think anyone really should do that. I think your boss is your boss for a reason. Um, and they may know more than you and that's more likely the path to humiliation and ruin, I would say. Um, so there's a little bit of a difference between sidestepping and going over their head. And I think one can be done successfully and respectfully and the other is far more likely to backfire. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I like the word sidestepping as opposed yeah. to going over their head. Cause yeah, that, that makes it sound a little, a little more Machiavellian than sidestepping. And it is ironic that, it's probably the better type of boss that's going to be okay with the sidestepping because if they're the better boss, it makes you question like, okay, did I really need to sidestep that person? Right. And the answer is sometimes we're all wrong. Sometimes. Eliza, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation in our next episode where Eliza and I will continue to discuss how women are operating between the legal lines in their careers. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.